Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing aging and how we can find joy even in the impermanence of our lives. I'm joined today by Susan Moon, a writer and Buddhist teacher in the Soto Zen tradition. Susan Moon is the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Alive Until You're Dead, as well as several other books, including This Is Getting Old and The Hidden Lamp. She's a contributor to Lion's Roar, uh, Tricycle, and other publications. She leads retreats in California and also internationally. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Susan Moon. I'm really delighted to have you on as a guest and to talk about your book, Alive Until You're Dead, Notes on the Home Stretch. Thank you so much, Laurel. I'm very happy to be here. So before we dive into our dialogue about joyful aging, let's begin with a moment of present moment awareness. Let's begin with a yoga moment. So let's start by just feeling our bodies in space. Whatever we're doing, whether we're walking or sitting or standing, just feeling our body and in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight. Where are our feet? What part of our weight is supported in the chair if we're sitting? And then turning our attention to the breath, just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feel how that air has now been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And then just staying with our breathing, not trying to change the natural rhythm. Here's something to contemplate, a teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Spiritual practice is choosing peace, clarity, and compassion in thought, speech, and action. We have only to observe our thoughts and choices to determine whether we are aligning ourselves with peace, chasing after desires, or succumbing to depression or inertia. Practice is making any corrections needed to stay the course of an uplifting way of life. Like a pilot steering toward a chosen destination, Constant course correction is necessary until we arrive. Once again, Susan Moon, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest and to talk about your book, Alive Until You're Dead, Notes on the Home Stretch. 
as I was reading your book, it really struck me. Uh, I started to wonder how it was for you to write a book on getting old in this American culture where getting old is not something that we embrace, to say the least. <laughs> In fact, many people pretend it's not happening and there's all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, lengths to which people go to Botox and etc, you know, uh, plastic surgery. I loved the sentence where you wrote, I see now that doing battle against aging is not a good use of my time. And so letting go of that fight is a big relief. I have a wider view and it's not because of my lens implants. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> so what has it been like for you to write a book about the joys and difficulties of aging in this culture that doesn't seem to want to acknowledge that aging is happening? Well, actually, I think it's a very good time to be writing a book about aging um, because uh, as, as baby boomers are getting older, it's becoming a subject of greater and greater interest. Um, and of course, young people tend to be less interested in reading about aging than people who are really doing it in the later stages. But um, when you're, as you're getting older, even though we don't like to admit it, it's, you have to admit that you're getting older when, when you have to keep getting joints replaced and get your hearing aid fixed and so on. And so it's becoming, I think it's becoming more okay to, admit that one is getting older there's a more conversation about it and there's more books about it mm -hmm. and also I, I think it's true that people still want to kind of bluff as best they can or hide it or not be publicly talking about it so that is kind of where I come in with my writing because it seems to be my particular uh, voice is is to express my own vulnerabilities and to speak about what's difficult. Uh, for some reason, I seem to be quite willing to do that. And I write about myself and my own experience. Um, I always say this, I write about it not because I'm any more important than anybody else, but just because I really uh, want to share with people that they are not alone and that, that, um, they're not the only person who's going through these things. So uh, that's, in a way, it's satisfying to me to, to write about something that is a painful subject for people, because I, I know that people appreciate it and, and appreciate putting some air and light on the subject and, and sharing it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated that about your book that you are writing about difficult things, but you have a lightness as I, as I uh, alluded to in that quote about the lens, <laughs> lens implants. That's not the source of your wider vision. I love that. So the first paragraph of the introduction, I thought really kind of set things up nicely and, and I have it, or would you like to read it? Well, um, why don't you read it? I'd like okay. to hear it in someone okay. else's voice just for the heck of it. Yeah. Okay, sure. So here it is. You don't know how long you're going to live. You know you're going to die, but it doesn't seem real. Then, as you get older, people you love die. You ache for them. Your mortality impresses itself upon you. You notice impermanence of all living things, maybe even of the human species. 
and you realize how amazing it is to be alive. You notice the joy of feeling connected to something beyond yourself. You catch a glimpse of what Zen master Dogen meant when he said 900 years ago, the entire universe is the true human body. Once again, the entire universe is the true human body. I thought that was just really lovely. And I wanted to ask you about how the experience of being old has been different than, as you say, getting old. I think that's a great question. And uh, when I wrote This is Getting Old, which came out 12 years ago or something, I, I was definitely getting old, but I hadn't yet gotten to the stage of being old. I, I didn't, I wasn't fully accepting that, oh yeah, I am old, but now, <laughs> wow, well, I'm at my next birthday in a couple of months, I am going to turn 80, which seems inconceivable to me. 80 is definitely old, and that I would be 80 is kind of a shock. <laughs> um, <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, no, so um, so there, there really is uh, a difference. And, and getting old, even when, when one knows one is old, now that I'm saying, okay, I'm being old now, but I'm still getting old, that's, that's the catch, too. You can't just finish getting old and be old. You have to keep on getting older, even when you're already being old. <laughs> but, but there's a, a kind of turning at the point where, one accepts the idea that I'm old. And now I, I, I'm perfectly easy about it. You know, I think of myself as an old person. I speak of myself as an old person. And uh, it's, it is a relief because uh, I'm, not, I'm not pretending anymore and I'm not worrying about trying to really look, look younger than I am. Or I've gotten to the age where I'm a little bit proud of being able to say, well, I'm almost 80. So, so yeah, I, I get to sit down more than I used to. When I when I need to sit down, I'm going to sit down or things like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It does seem like a certain kind of accomplishment, actually. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I enjoyed about your book is reading about the things that it seemed have been helpful to you in your aging journey. And you write that you were curious as a child and that you are still curious. You write in the book, I've always been curious about this world, about how a spider can spin from its own body the very thread it hangs by, or what it would be like to live in a house on stilts. I've learned to be curious about difficult things too. Years ago, when I was in a period of acute anxiety, a therapist asked me, can you get curious about this? That's a good mantra. I now take it with me through thick and thin. Can I get curious about this? And that just was really striking to me. So how has this ability to be curious about whatever might be happening to you been helpful to you, particularly perhaps in facing difficult changes? Well, I think it is a really good tool. And I, I think it was that therapist who gave me that idea initially that, um, yeah, you can, I can start asking myself curious questions. Well, I wonder, I wonder where this came from. I wonder what would make it feel better. I wonder um, uh, 
who else might have been feeling this and what could I learn from other people and and what can I learn about myself in life from having this experience and what can I say about it that might be of interest to people um this isn't exactly about curiosity but one of the um sort of great things about being a writer is that when something really bad happens to you, you can think, Oh my God, well, well, at least I have something to write. I can write about it. Um, <laughs> more so, material. <laughs> yeah. More material. So, um, and curiosity just as a, as a kind of research scientist on the human condition, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of myself as, well, I'm a laboratory scientist on what does it mean to be a human being? So I can use that approach and, um, what are, what am I adding to it too? That's another kind of question you can ask. How, how am I, let me get curious about how I'm actually creating this experience. How much of this experience am I making up? How much of it is really can't be changed and so on. Right. So. No, I, I think that's a, that's a such been such a valuable practice for me that, is actually one of the self-study is one of the three key practices of this Kriya Yoga, which is the kind mm -hmm. that, that I practice and self-study, uh, self-discipline and self-surrender. And uh, in self-study, I see all the time how there may be suffering, but ways that I'm adding to my own suffering by the way that I'm, by, by the way that I'm holding whatever is happening, you know, to me. And those are, that is to me so rich and so, and so valuable because if you can let go of that, you can really make things better. <laughs> if you can yeah, let go yeah. of that. Yeah. You yeah, wrote, uh, I give you not a catalog of aches and pains, but field notes from my research. What does it mean to be a human being approaching death? I offer a few observations. The nearer I get to death, the more alive I feel. The more I consider my own mortality, the less afraid I am of dying. And the older I get, the more readily I can put myself aside. That was all so rich for me, that everything you wrote there. And it made me wonder as a practitioner of Zen for over 40 years, you've certainly done a lot of meditation in your life. How, has meditation helped you develop the perspectives that you mentioned about feeling more alive as you age and, and less fearful of death? Well, I think it must have helped me. Um, I, I hope it has helped me. But on the other hand, you know, it's interesting because I've been doing it for so long that I don't know how I would be different if I hadn't been doing it. Um, right. Yeah. And it definitely um, helps me pay attention to being to the fact of being alive and, and sitting there breathing and paying attention to your breath that is in itself paying attention to life breath is life and you're following your breath and sometimes you're thinking about something else too and you come back to the breath but this constant um encouragement to notice i'm alive i'm alive i'm alive in each moment Mm. is very helpful and to be present in the moment and that's I think similar to what you're saying about your yoga practice of just really being present in the life that we're living mm -hmm. definitely is supported by my zen practice yeah yeah well, I think everyone would be interested in feeling more alive and I, I love the way you wrote about that. The nearer I get to death, the more alive I feel. I thought that was really, it was really rich, uh, the way that you put that. 
another chapter that I that I really enjoyed was your chapter called Joyful Effort about the Sanskrit word virya. That is one of the virtues that one can cultivate that help us on the bodhisattva path. And the bodhisattva path is uh, for those who work to free beings from suffering. Um, I just got curious about the Sanskrit word virya. And of course, the uh, yoga tradition also comes out of India. And of course, Sanskrit, many, many Sanskrit words, including <laughs> the word yoga. So I got curious about this word virya and whether it shows up in uh, the yoga tradition. And in, indeed, I did find it in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, one of the foundational texts of yoga philosophy. And similar, as you write, uh, that virya is a, a virtue to cultivate in Buddhism, virya is, all, virya is also listed in the Yoga Sutras in 120 as one of the five virtues to cultivate to attain enlightenment and free ourselves of attachment to body and mind. I thought it was interesting that virya is translated, of course, the Sanskrit words, one of the things that's interesting to me is they have so many different, you know, uh, meanings that are associated with them. But um, it, it was, I've, I saw it translated variously as the radiant energy of the soul, the energy that makes us shine, indomitable will, and disciplined endeavor. And just for those students of yoga who might be interested, the other four virtues are faith, unobstructed memory, all-consuming focus and the emergence of innate knowledge. All of those seem really interesting, but we're talking about virya right now. Um, and I really, what I liked about the Buddhist definition that you put forth is it brings in the idea of joy along with effort to make joyful effort. And one of the things, one of the first examples you give in that chapter is something your son Sandy said when he was five years old and very into Star Wars. So can you share that little thing that he said with our listeners? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just read that paragraph. Yeah, sure. It's actually the first paragraph in the book. Yeah. So when my son Sandy was five, he was a big Star Wars fan. For a while, he drew many pictures of lightsabers and the exhortation, may the forest be with you was often heard around our house. One day, Sandy told me, when you love somebody, you can feel the love coming straight out of your heart in a line like a lightsaber, and it touches the other person. This image cheers me still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I love that. I love that. <laughs> I love that too. And, and I, his, his analogy of love being like this beam of light coming out of a person. Yeah. So I, I do think that virya partakes of that kind of energy and that life force. And it's like a beam coming out. It's like light in a way. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the translations that you had too. I mean, I think radiant energy of the soul sounds pretty good. Too, <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah. that's a lot like the lightsaber of love. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you write about virya, you say, uh, you write, uh, virya is a good quality to cultivate at any age and especially good for someone who has reached the age when you meet a lot of jars you can't open. You can still have virya even if you can't get out the apricot jam. Virya is not about muscle power. Virya doesn't care about age. I'm not too old to make an effort, not too old to feel joy. I put the effort and the joy together and I've got my joyful effort. So what is it about the concept of virya that, that made you want to write about it that resonated with you? Well, I've always loved, loved that quality, which is one of the 
um, paramitas in, in Buddhism, the various qualities that, six qualities that uh, Bodhisattva cultivates, just like the four, was it four qualities or five qualities that you had? Right. Yeah. Well, um, and I think this kind of energy is, is really good for older people because, because, as I said, it isn't dependent. It's not the same as muscle strength. It's energy, but it's not how many calories can you burn up running fast or something. It's, it's the energy of, of just the vital force of our life that uh, keeps the light of life alive in us. And so it's definitely not dependent on age. And, and it's, it is like chi, I think, probably. And, um, and also, I can think of old people I know, and you probably do too. Uh, I think we've all known people who are old, but who have this brightness in their eyes and a kind of shining energy and interest and aliveness yes. in their eyes, or if not in their eye, if they're blind, then in their voice or their touch, there's a kind of... Um, vitality that is can be very very intense even when you're old right right and i think it's helpful that you made the distinction that it's not dependent on muscle strength yeah. so even if you can't open that jar yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that you can still have you know make effort that yeah. no one's too old basically to make yeah. effort and also to feel joy to make it be yeah. joyful so i thought that was really lovely one of the things you've already mentioned that's challenging about aging is that as we age, then people that are close to us um, don't, you know, they stop aging along with us. In other words, they lose people, they die, you know, as we continue on. And I think that that um, to me already uh, in my um you know, I'm, I'm 67 now, so a little bit behind you, but still on the, you know, on the gray haired path. Um, you write about witnessing the death of your close friend Friedel from a stroke. And I was struck by what you wrote here. If you've been present at both a birth and a death, you know it's the same gate, whether it says entrance or exit across the top. How do you know? If you get up close to the person who is being born or dying, you can get a fleeting glimpse through the gate to the horizonless expanse on the other side. And it looks the same, whether they are coming or going. I just thought that was really beautiful. Did you have another comment? Did you want to tell us more about that experience of, of hearing? And, and I know from, you know, the way that you wrote about it in the book, that it was kind of sudden, that it was in the, you know, in the context of having a surgery and that there was hope that mm -hmm. she was going to survive the surgery. And then, and then she didn't, uh, which was kind of sudden. So um, that's also shocking. I think when yeah. there's a sudden change like that. Well, I, I think I, um would just say that there is something similar strangely similar about birth and death and i've been present at both um i've been present at a couple of births um when i was keeping friends company and and i was also present at the birth of both of my children <laughs> i always say that on their birthdays i say you know the mother should celebrate the birthday too, because they are the, there were two people there that, that made this event happen. And it's really right. a birthday for the mother too. Anyway, um, that the there's grief at a death often, 
and there's joy at a birth, but the intensity of both of those feelings sort of goes beyond our ordinary realm of feelings. They're, they are feelings that take me to a different level of, of grasping the mystery and the magic of life itself. And I think whether it's a birth or a death, they, they make one, they humble me before the incredible miracle of life and that I should have this opportunity to be alive myself and to, um, so I, I think it's, there's something very much the same and, and very um, sort of lifts one beyond pettiness. You know, mm -hmm. you stop worrying about small things in the face of either birth or death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, there as a physician, of course, I've, I've, you know, I've been involved as a medical student initially and in, in uh, attending some births and then of course with friends of mine and then um, as a general internist taking care of people as they age and being in the hospital for my the three years of my internal medicine training I saw a lot of deaths yeah. um, and there is a sacredness always you know to that experience and and I appreciated how you wrote about that that there was this feeling of of something similar Mm -hmm. um, that sacred quality to, of course, a birth, a birth mm -hmm. or a death. Um, you write that uh, the death of someone close to you is like an alarm bell. Wake up. This is it. Do what you care about. Love is what matters. It's a, it's a, a call that we can't ignore, I feel. So how does the uh, how does your experience of the death of a friend or loved one affect you differently now than it did earlier in your life? I think it's more urgent because I do feel my own closeness to death. Uh, I'm now really willing to admit that I'm going to die, <laughs> um, and and so and I also feel the the shortness of the life ahead of me. Um, so that's this time is very precious that I have uh, all the time was equally precious, but my awareness of the preciousness of it now is much greater. And, and I also have a feeling sometimes when, when somebody I'm close to or love a lot dies and I, um, and there's certain things about that person that I really admire and, have learned from that person. I feel some odd responsibility to carry on in my own life as if the person out of, out of respect for the one who died, I owe it to her or him to carry on as best I can and offer what I can or um, learn from what the person taught me and try to enact that kind of love too. So right. that's right. a helpful way to to think about somebody's death too that think well they want me they want me to carry on they want me to be alive yeah yeah that 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 uh puts it really well and i think a, a lovely way to remember people that are are really mm -hmm. close to us who pass um, mm -hmm. a lovely way to carry their memory forward as a reminder i'm dr laurel trujillo host and producer of the yoga hour today i'm here with susan moon author of the book that we're talking about today, Alive Until You're Dead. You can also find out more about uh, Susan at the website 
everydayzen.org. And uh, you can follow her on Instagram uh, at her name, Susan Moon, at Susan Moon. We will also be posting the links to this website, to everydayzen.org, on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Susan, you, in your book, you refer to the 10 grave precepts of Buddhism, and in particular, not stealing, as living with a sense of gratitude. I was interested also in the parallels with yoga and that in Kriya Yoga, there's a similar set of 10 ethical principles called the Yamas and the Niyamas, and also non-stealing is, is another uh, of, the, of those yoga principles. So it's another kind of uh, parallel between yoga and Buddhism. Um, the idea uh, uh, of gratitude in and for life, I think is perhaps common to at least many of the spiritual traditions, most of the spiritual traditions. So would you share how you've experienced gratitude as an important part of aging and being old? Well, I, I think gratitude is a wonderful healing um, practice for at any age and for many ills and sorrows. Gratitude is a tremendous healing. Um, thinking about, you know, there's the practice of before you, go to sleep at night, right? And thinking of three things you're grateful for from that day or yeah. doing these things very deliberately can be extremely helpful. Um, and as an old person, there's a tendency to kind of look back on one's life and this is appropriate uh, sort of developmental stage of life to, to kind of be involved in some sort of life review and life acceptance, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and I know I have a, uh, some difficulty with regret. Sometimes I've, I've struggled with th certain things that I regret that I can kind of get stuck on or um, instead of just releasing those regrets. I, but I find that gratitude is, is also very helpful for that, for uh, turning instead of to what I'm grateful for in my life and to um, just thinking of the many, many gifts that have come to me in my life. And uh, so it's helpful as an old person to, to be aware of that. And also there's a, another practice that I talk about in the book. I think I have a chapter on, on the idea that of being satisfied, how to be satisfied, that we to have the mind that I have enough I have everything I need in this moment right and this is not a statement about economic well-being or something and there are also I acknowledge very very many people in the world who do not have everything they really do need in this moment but for a person who's not really in a state of urgent famine or war or um, we we can remember that right now I have what I need and a sense of sufficiency and, and even gratitude for that sufficiency uh, can come with age because we don't have to be as obsessed about building a life, making a life, figuring out how we're going to um, get a house or get, get a job. By the time of 
my age, I, I've already, I'm not figuring out who I am going to be anymore, how I'm going to show up. And I can just release a lot of that and, and just try to be present and grateful and satisfied in a joyful way with what is in the present moment. So it's a real opportunity to let go of self-clinging and stop worrying about yourself in a way that's a relief and just worry about other people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Be ready to give myself over to whatever's going on. I feel more able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, non non grasping, non attachment. I think that's another you know common uh, yeah. spiritual you know practice, um, and feeling that sense of sufficiency. I think is a is such a helpful you know practice of feeling um, that I have enough. Yeah, I am enough. I have enough. All those things are 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 very very helpful. Along that same line, in your book, you talk about noticing and paying attention to everyday miracles. And as you say, show my own miraculous powers. So would you say more about the practice of noticing everyday miracles? Well, uh, I think they're they're happening all the time. Like this morning I was sitting um, in my armchair, looking out the window, having a cup of tea. And I saw the woman, the young woman across the street who I'm very fond of, my neighbor, came down the steps with her seven-year-old daughter by the hand and they were walking down in the sunny sidewalk to the bus stop and the daughter was swinging her lunchbox and they were sort of skipping along and chatting and and it was just so lovely to see them and it was that was an everyday miracle yes um, yeah or or the bird the bird feeder or uh i don't know just appreciating a shift of color or a shadow on the wall um so uh they're all over the place if we can appreciate them and then um were were you asking about uh, miraculous powers Uh, yes that was going to be my next question yes oh oh, okay (laughs) show your own show your own miraculous powers so what did you mean by that yeah yeah there's a wonderful story in there that I quote about showing your own miraculous powers so just as miracles are everywhere our own we have all kinds of miraculous powers ourselves to to walk our daughter to the bus stop or um but uh to appreciate the things that I love to do the things that make me happy to do when 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 we act out of love when we act um out of caring uh, we're showing our own miraculous powers. And when I, I have a, one of my granddaughters lives in Austin, Texas. And I'll, during this long COVID time, we've con- stayed connected by having FaceTime dates and we often um, cook together. So we plan a recipe ahead of time and then we have the ingredients. And then on the, at the date, she in her kitchen uh, with some help from her one of her parents often and I and mine are making brownies together and we have the ingredients and we show each other our (laughs) eggs and everything. And I feel like this is a, this is a miraculous power that I'm showing her and she's showing me back of how we can make brownies on FaceTime. What a miraculous thing. Yeah. So, and just to kind of 
it wasn't a big deal to come up with that idea, but it just has worked out so well that I feel I was somehow expressing a miraculous power by yeah. doing that. So there's a lot of room for um, joy and, and Viria too can come yes. through in miraculous powers that we yeah. have in our everyday lives. Yeah. <coughs> that, that is a, a lovely story. I love that. And it also, when I was thinking about miraculous powers, I was, as a physician, of course, I know on a cellular level much more than most people do about how the body works. Mm. And yet it's still miraculous to me. Like, for example, a, a family member over this past weekend developed appendicitis oh. and yeah, he had a, a, the surgery, you know, that removed the appendix and is healing and is pretty much almost back to normal. Just what is this now? Maybe five or six days later. So I think about the miraculous power of the body, you know, to to heal itself, to return itself to this steady state, this uh, equilibrium that we have, that there are so many processes in the body that do that, which um, is it, it's just fun. And that to me, those are everyday miracles too, just what the body can do and, and how and how it can heal uh, amazingly yeah, <laughs> and, and continue uh, up until, you know, up until obviously can't do that anymore. Um, and then, you know, that's the point at which, uh, at which we uh, pass and can't do that mm. anymore. But it's remarkable that up until that point, it keeps, it keeps yeah. going and keeps trying. It's that vitality, right? That vitality that we have. Yeah. Right. Are you still practicing as a physician? No, I, I have retired uh, now, and uh, now my practice is uh, is being a podcast host. <laughs> well, that's a big practice, Maggie. That's a kind of physician, too, I think. Yeah. Um, what you were saying about the miracle of the, of the body healing is, I, I sometimes think, you know, when I um, get a blister or something and it heals, or a bruise and it heals, or something more major and it heals. I think, gosh, if I, if I drive my car into a, a tree by mistake and get a little dent in the fender, no matter how long I wait, the fender doesn't. <laughs> that's and right. That's, and that's a way of really making me realize what an incredible miracle the healing of the body is. It's just going on without you doing anything about it. It just, right. Doesn't. Right. You don't have to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say, Oh yes, make a, make a scab, make the blood stop coming yeah. out of that cut. You know, yeah. it just happens, which is great. Yeah. You encourage us in the book to practice th this practice of contemplating death. And one of the practices is reading the five remembrances. Um, again, I have them here. Did you want to read them? It's on page 142. Or would you like me to read them? But I thought I thought it was really good. I, I really enjoyed those. Oh, I, I had not been familiar. I had not been familiar with those before. Yeah, well, I'll read them. They're very foundational in in some forms of Buddhist practice. And they're challenging um but the thing that amazes me is how helpful they are and and weirdly encouraging in a strange way so um there wait what page you said they're on page? 142 142 thank you okay um this is a translation by Thich han i am of the nature to grow old there is no way to escape growing old i am of the nature to have ill health there is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. 
My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. So I think accepting those things can bring a deep uh, equanimity in a sense, um, again, of not fighting against what you can't fight against. Right. Um, and I think old age, sickness, old age, and death are the three things that Buddha saw. And, and so those are mentioned in the first three, that those three things are inevitable. The fourth one is the one that's really a rough one. Of, uh, you're going to lose everybody. Everybody you love, you're going to lose them. You're going to be parted from them. That's really a rough one. Uh, that's the, but um, to accept the impermanence of everything is, is really helpful because it also means that things come in and there are births as well as deaths and, and changes. Everything keeps changing and relationships keep changing. And it's not always about losses. It can also be about gains, but yeah. that everything, everything is going to go. And so you don't have to cling to it because it doesn't make any difference. And then the last one I find so encouraging that my actions are my only true belongings, but they are my true belongings. That I do have that. I do have the choice always of making actions and trying to make beneficial actions that will have beneficial results. And that's the ground on which I stand. I have that ground to stand on is to try and act as best I can in this world. Yeah. How do you find this practice of contemplating death, which you which you encourage in the book and and these five remembrances? How has that been helpful in um, living more fully and joyfully? Well, again, I think it, it has to do with gratitude that we've been talking about, and it's a it's a spiritual practice in many different traditions. The idea of memento mori you know saint jerome looking at the skull or whatever in christianity um to to realize that the life that we have is a gift um and that and to contemplate death is to uh remember that that it's not it's not all there is we don't know what else there is um and, but we do know that we're here right now. And I have this sign, I, I mentioned, I have this sign over my desk. It says, I mean, it's just on, on my desk. It says, don't think for a moment, you're not going to die. Mm. So that seems maybe like a morbid thing to put on my desk, but I look at it and I think, yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm not dead now. I'm alive. Wow. <laughs> Let's, let's That's right. have fun. I can still be grateful. Yeah, I can still yeah. make joyful effort. The things we've been talking about, yeah. I think, are, and, are and so the preciousness personal. of it is so palpable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You write about four practices for dealing with losses as we age, which are observe, adapt, let go, and accept. And you add in a fifth practice of love. Would you talk about these five practices and why you feel they're important in joyful living as we age? Well, this is a, a kind of big whole chapter. I'll try to really be brief, but um, it's a way I have of thinking about losses that 
has helped me. So first of all, uh, observe what exactly is happening here. Don't be telling myself a lot of stories. Just notice exactly what's the problem here. I can't walk downstairs very well or whatever it is. Notice it. Um, pay attention. The second one, adapt. Okay, so now that I've noticed it, how can I do it differently so that it works out? Um, install a handrail or whatever. What, what are the actual things I can do to adapt? Or I can't see at night, so I don't, I'd adapt. I don't drive at night, but I try to get a ride if I'm going to something in the evening that I need to go to by car. Okay, sometimes, so that's, that's a very simple, straightforward thing. <clears throat> then um, the third one, the fourth one is um, let go. Let go. Mm -hmm. Was it let go? Uh -huh, let go, yeah, you got yeah. it. Yeah, good. Yeah, the, sometimes you can't adapt. And you can't, you can't do it some other way. There's not a different way to do it. You just have to let go of it. Mm -hmm. And that can be hard, but it can also be a relief. And letting go is what it's all about anyway. Letting go is at the heart of Buddhist practice of not clinging to things that we can't have. So the more we're able to loosen our grasp, the happier we can be, the more joyful we can be because we're not holding on to something that is, I can't keep. Right. So, um, I think one of, uh, one of the Theravadan teachers, uh, I think it's Ajahn Sumedho said that there are six words, you can describe Buddhist practice in six words, let go, let go, let go. <laughs> That's the third one. The fourth one is um, accept. Okay, so that's kind of coming back around to the first one of saying, okay, this is, this is what it is. This is how it is. This is how it is right now. I accept it. This is my life right now. Mm -hmm. And then that's, again, a kind of peaceful approach. And then the last one of love as a verb is um, what I realized that no matter, <clears throat> this sort of came to me one day, all of a sudden, I know it seems obvious, but no matter what I lose, what abilities I lose, sight, hearing, walking, I nobody can take away from me and nothing can take away from me really the ability to love i i can still do that no matter how old and infirm i might be mm -hmm. so just keep loving mm -hmm. that you can do mm. that's beautiful that's and that's beautiful. one of the things about aging that's a joy actually is that there are certain things that you can count on like that and you can you can count on just being present in the moment. You can count on the present moment and you can give yourself to it in a way that is much harder to do when you're young and running around more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can be very joyful and peaceful. Mm -hmm. You did a good job of, of uh, explaining that. And I, um, getting back to one of the things we were talking about earlier about grasping and how it can add to our own suffering there's so many things in life that we can't control. There's a, there's, we have goals, we have things that we want to accomplish. And sometimes it's just not possible, 
for often for reasons that are totally outside of our control. And we can really suffer with that. We can really suffer with things not being the way that, that we want them to be. Or as you say, we can just let go and accept the fact that things are the way they are. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is, it's, you know, beyond our ability to change. And then I love that way you described love as a verb. And that's something that we can always do, mm-hmm. no matter how impaired we may be and other, other, you know, things, activities we may have had to let go of, as you said, driving it at mm-hmm. night or, you know, or maybe even dealing with stairs. Maybe we have to, you know, change the place that we live or move our bedroom downstairs or, you know, whatever it yeah. is and being able to age. I think what you've talked about are, are practices that are so helpful in terms of aging gracefully mm-hmm. and, and being happy, continuing to be happy. Cause also the other thing we can be is just angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> things aren't, things aren't <laughs> the way, and that's not helpful to us. It's certainly not yeah. helpful to the people that are around us, you know? So yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you've been a, a practitioner of, of uh, Zen Buddhism for, as we've said, over 40 years. And the goal in Zen Buddhism and the goal in yoga is enlightenment. In one of your chapters, you asked the question, will I ever wake up? Would you share how you answered your own question of will I ever wake up? Well, um I think that I revised the question as I thought about it and realized that, yes, I have woken up lots of different times and will keep on waking up lots of different times. And that actually different kinds of Buddhism have different stresses on enlightenment. And in Soto Zen, which is the kind I practice, we don't really have the, put so much emphasis on, well, did you have an enlightenment experience or not? We don't really talk about that because there's also the teaching that we're all already enlightened. We just are already perfect. We already have everything we need. We just don't realize it. That's our problem, but we are already awake. Mm. Um, and there's a wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, who is, is famously said to his students, well, you are all already perfect just as you are. And you could use a little improvement. <laughs> so, um, I so love things are true. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I, I do feel that um, so, sometimes <clears throat> we get a glimpse of awakening, of, of this vastness, of, connect, of this sense of great interconnectedness. But it's there all the time. I mean, what I was saying about birth and death, those are moments, I think, of of a sort of noticeable awakening of, wow, this is a pretty big universe we live in. And I'm just this little speck of life in this vast universe. And it can be a really wonderful feeling. Um, and those, that, that sense is somehow with me always now in the background. I just mm. take it on faith that, that it's a big, vast interconnected life. And that I am not alone. Yeah. And, yeah. And also, I just want to say that the, the, one of the main points in my book is that um, the impermanence of our lives, which we struggle with so much, is really the source of our joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if everything was permanent and frozen in place, there would be no joy at all, obviously. It's we have to have change and growth and dynamic interactions and 
Um, that's what makes our lives beautiful, the tenderness of it. Mm-hmm. Watching the plant bloom and watching the flowers wilt. That's both all part of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we can do that more as we're old. We can really, we have a good opportunity to really appreciate the beauty of our impermanent life when we're old because we don't have to be quite so busy fixing fixing our life to be a certain way we can just say wow this is so great now mm-hmm. so great mm-hmm. well amazingly we've come to the end of the show in closing what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to share with our listeners well gosh <clears throat> maybe i just said some of them um yes yeah but i think that um i think that to be able to be whatever age you are and to be aware of of how how wonderful it is to have this present moment is such a gift and i think that also that it's very very important to remember that you're not alone and we're doing this together. We're all, even if we're not talking about it to each other, we're all doing it together. We're all here together. We're all getting older, no matter how young we are, we're getting older. Time is passing. We're all living in time here between birth and death and we're doing it together. And we have a lot, a lot of things to attend to. I'm not saying whether you're whatever age you are, you shouldn't just sit in a chair and and um do nothing but think how wonderful this moment is i mean it's good to engage with life in however you can and we've got some big problems to engage with on this planet and old people can support young people and offer what they can offer too so i'm not suggesting seceding from the business of life but right um to be present with this just a great appreciation for our interconnectedness and from what we can give each other, which I, I get more and more of that as I get older, I'm more able to appreciate that mm-hmm. interconnectedness. That's beautiful. And with that, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Susan Moon. You can find out more about Susan at the website everydayzen.org. And a link to that website will be posted on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Susan Moon, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laurel. It was a pleasure. For listeners, we hope you join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we offer meditation daily in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific time, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30. Those are all Pacific times. We also offer a Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week. Join us for the next online course, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life, with Reverend Sundari Jensen, which is going to be focusing on teachings of Samkhya philosophy. And that's going to be open as an online on-demand course shortly, later on this month of August. Vastu for a Vibrant House with Reverend Irma Lovick is an online on-demand course as well that will be coming at the end of this month. It will be released August 30th. This is a course to help us create our home as sanctuary.
You can find out more about the many classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment at the website csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by Acharya Shunya, a Vedic teacher and author of the book Roar Like a Goddess, about accessing the goddess qualities within as we step into our innate divinity. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember that you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.